Please listen carefully. Welcome back to the Utterly Moderate Podcast. Thanks for joining us. We've got a good show for you today. Up first, we're going to be joined by Paul Post, who is a faculty member in the Department of Political Science at the University of Chicago and an expert in international relations. He will help us understand how the war in Ukraine may end and what all this means for the future. In segment two, we're going to have Allison Ritchie and Madison Lockman stopping by for a few minutes. They are our new production assistants here at the podcast, and they're going to stop by and introduce themselves and and talk a little bit about themselves. So, should be a good show. So, up first, we've got Paul Post from the University of Chicago. Paul, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me. Well, it's uh, this is a big topic, and we wanted somebody who could really explain it in a way that um, was incisive and uh, succinct and accessible. And we think that you're the person to do it. So, thanks for coming on. Oh, no. Thank you for asking me. So I guess my my first question will start in the present. I do want to go backwards and talk about what could have been done to prevent this. I also want to uh, roll this forward and think about where it's going in the future. But let's start in the present. Um, Recently, you were talking to, um, I believe it was Derek Thompson over at The Atlantic, and you were talking about different scenarios. So in your mind, from where you sit right now, what do you see as the most likely scenario? how this is all, all going to end. So as a quick recap for your listeners, the scenarios that I laid out were kind of going from basically the most, if you will, successful or practical, achievable, if you will, for Russia, all the way up to really kind of a nightmare scenario. Um, and none of these scenarios are necessarily good. So just saying that one is a nightmare and the others aren't doesn't mean that any of them are necessarily good scenarios. The best of bad choices. The yeah. best of bad choices, exactly. And so the first scenario was a quagmire that basically scenarios one and two envision that the objective of this military campaign is regime change. And so scenario one is that it goes poorly. And that Russia gets bogged down in some sort of quagmire. Uh, You could even think of this as similar to what happened to the United States with the Iraq war. Scenario two is that it goes successfully. And so one way to think about it is that scenario one is a unsuccessful Iraq war type objective. And scenario two is a successful Iraq war type objective. Scenario three is that Russia has ambitions beyond just simply changing the regime. In Ukraine and that they're actually seeking to annex Ukraine, conquer it and annex it. Scenario four is that they have objectives that actually go beyond Ukraine into other post-Soviet countries, other uh, former Soviet republics. This could be Moldova. This could include even the Baltic states, though that's kind of in scenario five. I'll get to that in just a second. But that the objective would be to start with Ukraine and then move beyond that to try to recreate the Soviet empire, if you will. And then scenario five is major power war. And this is the scenario where you now have direct confrontation, direct military fighting between Russia, NATO, the United States. And this would be because Russia has actually attacked a NATO ally, whether that's Poland, because they perceive Poland as providing support and allowing refugees to be able to enter the country, or they attack the Baltic states as part of an objective to try to reconquer those countries. And so that's scenario five. So those were the scenarios that I laid out. And Right now, based on what I'm observing in terms of how the conflict's going, and we can definitely talk more about this, as well as further information that we've received about the objectives that Russia has, I think the most likely scenarios are somewhere between one and three. Those first three, I think those are the most likely. And indeed, I think scenario one is becoming increasingly likely. That is, Russia tries to achieve regime change. They may even successfully do so, but that doesn't end the fighting and that it becomes a protracted conflict that Russia really can't extract itself from. This, of course, would be very devastating to all parties. 
I also think that scenario three seems like that was actually on the card. Seems like that, especially now that we have seen certain documents, there was this one document that was released, quickly taken down, that was titled The Solution to the Ukrainian Problem that came up by the Russian government. And that one suggested that the objective was full conquering and annexation of Ukraine. So I think that that may have actually been their aim. But I think the most likely scenario now is kind of this protracted conflict, quagmire, if you will, where the objective is regime change. Right. Because we need to separate, I think, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, but we need to separate what the intention was and what we think the outcome will be because that could change based upon not achieving a certain objective and having to sort of you know pivot. But you say, I think I saw in that same piece that I'm referencing, uh, you said, given the size and scale of the invasion, coupled with the rhetoric, I really do think the objective is somewhere, some form of annexation, full yes. conquer, right? So and um, so as you as you lay out those uh, uh, those scenarios, why do you think that that intention wouldn't come to fruition? It's just too hard to um, you know rule a country that's resisting. What what do you think is uh, what changes the calculation? So for me, what I think changes the calculation is looking at the initial war strategy followed by Russia and now seeing it starting to shift. Um, I was talking to someone yesterday where I said that, make no mistake, we're not at the beginning of the end of this war. We're at the end of the beginning. Mm -hmm. And the beginning, I think Russia tried to follow what I would call a Crimea model for their military campaign, for the military operation. What I mean by that is if you go back to 2014, when Russia took the Crimean peninsula from Ukraine and annexed it, they were able to accomplish it through what we would call a fait accompli. They were able to send in their troops very quickly, nary a shot was fired, and there, they have it. It's theirs. And they were able to take it, roll the troops right down the road. And it was very, it was actually a quite simple operation. And as I said, there was like, as far as, far as I know, there were like no casualties, no fatalities. It was truly just rolling the troops and take it. My sense is that they tried something similar, but at scale. Mm -hmm. My sense is that the initial campaign, though they expected to have obviously more resistance because now you're fully invading the country. My sense is that they thought that they could pull off something similar, but for the entire country by just simply of maybe you could call it a shock and awe type of strategy, but just send in troops very quickly. You notice they were using the roads. They weren't even using air power. They were just trying to get the troops in quickly. And I think trying to establish control, hoping to maybe achieve a similar end. Of course, due to the resistance on the part of the Ukrainians, as well as the assistance that's coming from the international community, that objective is not being achieved. And now we're starting to see a pivot. Unfortunately, we're starting to see the Russian military pivot to the alternative war strategy, which I would call the Chechnya model or even the Syria model. And this is a much more um, lethal. This is a more ruthless form of war fighting. This is an escalation of the deadliness of the war fighting. This is using now more air power bombardment and to be frank, more disregard for civilian life. And so this is the model that I think we're starting to see now the Russian military pivot to. And that to me, when combined with the resistance from the Ukrainian government, as well as the assistance they're receiving, strikes me as a recipe for a protracted and ugly conflict. So when you think about the U.S.'s response to uh, the Russian aggression, and when you think about what our allies have done, um, you know, what have we done? What is your opinion of um, whether or not it was the right move, the wrong move, too, too little? Uh, and then what more could we do? It's a big question. It's a big question. And indeed, it's such a big question because the response both by the United States and really the international community as a whole, which I should add has been enabled by the United States. The Biden administration has done a very good job behind the scenes of kind of enabling and pulling together this international response. But this response is in many ways unprecedented. So first of all, you have essentially economic warfare being waged on Russia. You have massive level of economic sanctions. What we mean by this is restrictions on financial flows. So inability of Russian banks to be able to conduct transactions abroad, inability of Russians to be able to get money out of the country. 
you have trade restrictions. Now, these haven't been put in place in full, but there have been some restrictions on, say, the Russian oil industry and energy industry, though there have been some carve outs for this. You also have just the number of countries that have been involved with this. You have so many countries that are involved with this now. You have Switzerland, who is the epitome of the neutral state, and they are actually participating in this. And of course- Can't use that cliche anymore, right? Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> we can't use that cliche. But of course, I think most of your listeners would be aware of the idea of a Swiss bank account that, oh right. yeah, this is where people who have done unsavory things can safely put their money. But even Switzerland has drawn the line when it comes to what they're witnessing Um in Ukraine by Russia. Uh, same thing with Singapore. This is another country that has frequently tried to take a more neutral path. They are engaged with this. So from an economic side, it's just been unprecedented in terms of the scale, the number of countries, and the magnitude of the economic pressure being put on Russia. The other way in which they've been providing assistance, and quite openly so, is of course weapons, or mm-hmm. you know, to use the more euphemistic term, lethal aid, right? <laughs> but that is, they've been providing arms, and by they, I am referring to not just the United States, and not even just NATO, but in an unprecedented, again, I'm using that term quite a bit right now, but these truly are, like these have never happened before, the EU is actually providing weaponry to Ukraine and Ukrainian forces. The other moves that have been discussed is, you know, should they start to provide like a no-fly zone Mm. to help prevent once, especially once you start to see the Russian Air Force begin to be used in full, should the United States and NATO countries provide some sort of no-fly zone? What that means is basically you demarcate a region of the country where Russian jets are not allowed to fly. And if they are flying there, you will shoot them down. So I think immediately your listeners could tell why that might be a problem and why that might be a type of response that would not be pursued. Because now you're talking about the potential for direct military confrontation between NATO, United States, and Russia. But that is something else that's being considered. But still, just to emphasize the scale in terms of the economic warfare and the number of arms that are being shipped to and supplied to Ukraine is just at a massive level, massive scale. Now, are you happy with this response or do you think we should be doing more? This is a situation where, kind of going back to what you were just saying about the scenarios, this is a situation where... Unfortunately, a lot of times in foreign policy, you're only faced with bad options. Yeah. But it's it's true in that there really are no good options for the international community here, starting with the sanctions, right? I mean, the sanctions themselves, they're designed to do harm to Russia, but they, they do harm by doing harm to yourself, mm-hmm. right? You are cutting yourself off from being able to economically interact with the Russian economy. Uh, I mean, a good, just smaller example of this is the fact that BP and Shell have canceled certain ventures in Russia because of this, but that's going to do harm to their stock. That's going Mm. to be something that's going to harm their shareholders, but they're willing to do this. But that is just one example of how this is, that's not a good option, but it's an option they're pursuing. Same thing with the arms. Shipping in arms so openly is something that's necessary to do. But if you were to reverse things, what if when the United States had invaded Iraq, if Russia was openly arming the opposition there, that would have been viewed by the United States as an act of war by Russia. And I think that you would have seen a very harsh response by the United States and potentially an escalation of the conflict. And that's what that key word there, escalation, that's really the thing that makes all the options difficult to use because in any of them you're worried about escalating to that scenario five that I talked about major power war. So as somebody who's not in the military, as somebody who doesn't want to send my son overseas to die for this, I am not suggesting at all that I I think we should do this, but I just want to walk through the steps here and say, well, what if you were to do this? So I understand world wars are bad, um, but I'm, I'm trying to figure out. So when you say escalation, Obviously, we don't want direct confrontation. We don't want our own troops dying. We don't want bombs falling on Germany and France, et cetera. But my question to you is, it sounds like there's a broader fear of somebody else jumping into the fight. Who else are we scared would join this fight? 
So there is a fear that someone else would join this fight. I think that it's it's not just a conflict with Russia, or it wouldn't just be a conflict with Russia. We've already seen where Belarus has come in, right? Belarus was already allowing the initial invasion to come in through the territory. We now have reports of Belarus sending in troops. So that's already one way in which it's becoming multilateral. The multilateral nature of things and by multilateral of course meaning that there's just there could be all these different states it's not just a pure bilateral one-on-one ukraine against russia type of conflict this is where you also have other risks for escalation and i hinted at this earlier but for instance we know that a lot of refugees in fact i think i saw the numbers this morning there's now over a million refugees uh for this crisis and a lot of them are going into poland Well, if the resistance that we were talking about earlier, if that resistance becomes extremely troublesome, if you will, for Russia, would Russia start to perceive these refugees and in particular where they are being housed? Could they perceive that as a staging ground for this resistance? Mm -hmm. And if that happens, could they take action against the locations were those and against the nations that are housing those refugees. Because this is something we know from other conflicts that a lot of times refugees, where they go, even though most of the refugees are just simply civilians trying to get away, they can also be used as staging grounds for funding like a resistance and so forth. And this is one thing that has led to the internationalization of, of say, an internal war, if you will. So that is something that's a real risk. And I think that is a one scenario in which an escalation can come about due to not necessarily the actions of just Ukraine and Russia itself, but the actions of another country, in this case, Poland, being willing to house refugees. So uh, many folks, including yourself, uh, have stated that you are becoming increasingly worried that this becomes a nuclear crisis. Um, so just walk us through how worried you are. Um, what's the probability of that? Um, fill us in on that. So when it comes to the possibility of this becoming a nuclear crisis, or we'll just even call it a nuclear war, that if nuclear weapons are being used, we're still dealing with very low probabilities. But when it comes to something like nuclear war, those low probabilities matter, right? And you have to take them seriously. I think also something that, um, Maybe some of your listeners heard the other day, I know it really got my attention, was Fiona Hill, who was in the Trump administration, um, was the Russian expert in the Trump administration. And she had an interview where she said, anything you think Putin couldn't do, he could. Right. And I think that that was something that really got a lot of people's attention and made them worried. And she was indeed referring to the possibility that he would use nuclear weapons, that people would sit there and go, there's no way he would do this. She's like, no, he, he could. He could. Still low probability, but he could. On Sunday, we saw where Russia did raise the readiness level of their nuclear forces. And so that is something that right away is was pointing to the possibility of this escalation. I think the major reason why folks are worried about, folks like myself, are worried about an escalation to the nuclear level is because of the type of pressure that Russia is facing, especially if you look at like the economic pressure mm-hmm. that Russia is facing, that you run the risk of backing Putin into a corner. You run the risk of putting him in a situation where he feels like he has nothing to lose and that he is going to potentially gamble, if you will. Um, I think it was, um, it might have been Bismarck, might have been Frederick the Great. It was a German leader who said that basically you would commit suicide out of fear of death, mm-hmm. right? That you would take some sort of extremely risky action just because you either know there's nothing left to lose or because you think there's maybe a small chance that this could help you. The key example of this, and I've given this example before, is when Japan attacked Pearl Harbor. That this was exactly this type of scenario where the United States was putting immense economic pressure on Japan, oil embargo. The Japanese government knew they were running short of oil. They feared what would happen and they took the gamble, even though they knew it was a gamble and they knew it was a low probability of success in terms of achieving the ultimate objective. And that was the U.S. backing off. They still attacked Pearl Harbor. Of course, it didn't work. And this is something that was likely to happen, but nevertheless, the Japanese did that. And so the concern is that you could have something similar happen 
with Putin and that he is put into a situation where he can't back down. He can't find an off ramp. He feels like he's been backed into a corner and that raises the probability that he might do something drastic. So uh, I was reading a piece by David Fromm and he argued that uh, if we wanted to, and again, I'm not a, I have no background in economics. I have no background in finance. So I, I, I don't know if any of this is true, but you know, I, I lend some credence to the fact that it's from and it's being published in the Atlantic and other folks have supported it. But um, he wrote a piece saying essentially that if we wanted to, us and our allies, we could essentially kill the Russian central bank and we could completely cripple the Russian economy. Uh, I guess my first question would be, do you agree with that? And secondly, is this the reason we don't do that because of backing him into a corner? Like, what's the reason not to go full scale if this doesn't work? So I think, yes, we could do that, um, though it's actually interesting to see what kind of levers that central banks have at their disposal. Uh, just today, we saw where Russia's central bank is starting to make use of their gold reserves, which is kind of this archaic element from a past era, right, of the gold standard. Like, But central banks still have gold. Why do they have gold? Exactly for these kind of situations where it's like when you have no, nothing else to turn to, you can turn to gold. But I do think that this fear of going all in is very much what is holding it back that there's, and I think there's something else to it. It's not just the fear of going all in and backing Putin to a corner. It's also that you need to still have something on the table mm. as a bargaining chip that you can use as a threat. And this was something Biden talked about last week during his press conference where they asked, why haven't you yet done this or done that? And he said, because we want to keep those things available if Putin goes further, right? And so you want to have that as a bargaining chip. So I think that's another reason is to be able to say, look, if you think it's bad now, it can get worse and hoping that that could serve as some sort of way of compelling him to back down. But my sense is that that's just not going to happen. I, I really think that the economic damage is being factored in, if you will, mm -hmm. and that Putin, if not everybody within the Russian government, but definitely Putin is willing to incur that pain to achieve the objective that he thinks needs to be achieved with regard to Ukraine. So do you think that, uh, and I, I don't have any idea about this. I don't know how much information is making its way to the Russian people. I don't know, you know, how to really gauge the reports that I'm seeing about how they might feel, but do you think there's widespread recognition of this in Russia? Do you think if there was recognition, would Russians support this? What's the potential for a mass uprising of Russian people against this? Give me your thoughts on that. So, one way in which this scenario ends peacefully, if you will, is exactly what you're talking about, which is that there's the possibility of some mass protests leading to Putin being out of office or the possibility of, and more likely, though still unlikely, but more likely would be what you would call like a palace coup, right? Mm -hmm. that basically, his own inner circle takes over and removes him from office. And I think that those are both things that could lead to a sudden change that would then lead the Russia lead Russia to be willing to just end the conflict. Unfortunately, I think both of those are unlikely to happen. I think that the Russian government has procedures and is very um, impervious, if you will, to mass protests. And then also within his inner circle, this is just, first of all, this is just something that's very hard to achieve, right? And pulling off a coup is hard to do under any circumstances let alone dealing with someone like Putin who has become increasingly isolated. Uh, that is something that has been pointed out. You also, it was very evident from like the meeting last week when he had his National Security Council meeting prior to the invasion where he had all these members of his Security Council basically tell him what he wanted to hear. Mm -hmm. It's a very clear sign that people- He's also sitting at the, at the end of the longest table that I've at ever seen. At the end of the longest <laughs> table, exactly. And But they're just all telling him what he wants to hear. And so that's a sign that like they're not looking to change anything anytime soon. And then also you can just look at history, like during World War II, it was very well known that there were a number of members of the German government who wanted to overthrow Hitler, wanted to remove him to try to sue for peace. And of course, they all failed in doing that. And a big reason why is because autocratic leaders are very good at coup proofing. Uh, someone who's written a very good book about this in the context of warfare is Caitlin Talmadge at Georgetown University. She wrote a book called The Dictator's Army. And it's, it's very much about this, that about dictators will go out of their way to try to ensure that they're not overthrown, especially during wartime. So 
that's something that gives us a lot of pause to say that even though those are the scenarios that could bring about a quick end to the conflict, I don't think either of those are likely to happen. But so, you know, six months down the road, God for God help us. Uh, this is still going on and he's, you know, killing civilians and we're just watching it on TV. Um, what other steps should we take? I mean, you've outlined some pretty drastic steps. You've outlined a no-fly zone. You've outlined, you know, killing the central bank. I mean, uh, what in six months, if we were still sitting in this very spot, what more would you have us do knowing all of the possible, you know, unintended or intended consequences that could be connected to these actions? What would you have us do? So if we're still doing this six months from now, which I think is a possibility, my biggest concern wouldn't be what new things could we do. It's can we keep in place what we're already doing, right? Because if you take, for example, the sanctions, as we already talked about, these sanctions are costly, not just to Russia, but to the countries that are imposing them. How long are they going to be willing to keep doing this, right? We have a massive international coalition that's willing to take these measures now, but we're only six or seven days into this thing. We go six or seven months into it, you really have to wonder how long this can be achieved. And it's because of something that international relations scholars have known for a long time and was very well said by Bob Axelrod and Bob Cohane back in the early 80s, which is under anarchy, international cooperation is difficult. Right. And it's just hard to achieve. And so we have it right now, but to sustain it for another six months, another seven months, I would become worried about defection at that point. That some countries say, well, you know, we're going to start to ease up a little bit. We just simply can't keep this going. And so that's what I would be concerned about is not so much what new could we put on, but can we keep what's already in place going for that long? So then what's the objective? So if you're if you're sitting in Biden's chair right now and you know you have certain cards on the table, um, like at what point do you say we've, we've got to break this by this point, like a month from now, two months from now? Like what, at what point are you trying to say like we need there's got to be some turning point here for us? So that's something that's really stood out to me is according to the reports that I've seen. Um, by, say, people who cover the financial sector and, and various countries. They've talked about and you know the various treasuries or finance ministries. One thing that stood out is they haven't heard much about what is the off-ramp for the sanctions. Like, what are, when, at what point do you end them? What, what's the objective? It's like, okay, we put these on. How long do we keep them on? How do we do this? And so there's evidence of yet there hasn't been kind of this thinking through all the scenarios yet. And that makes it very difficult then to for a Biden administration to then come up with a solution of, okay, this is when we end it because I don't think that's been thought through yet. So the first step is to truly lay out what you would call your war aims, right? What are your war aims? And the US, even though we're not technically at war, we are. And so we have to make those clear. Now, one thing we know from scholars who have studied war duration and war ending is these aims tend to change over time. This is something that Dan Ryder talks about in his book, How Wars End, that as the fighting evolves, so do the war aims. And so you could turn. So just because you set them out now, six days into the conflict, doesn't mean they won't change seven, six months from now. But I think that's one thing that has to be laid out is what are the war aims? And moreover, what are war aims that are realistic? I mean, it's one thing to sit there and say unconditional surrender on the part of Russia, right? But that's just not realistic. Um, I will say here what I've said elsewhere, which is that the only way Russia leaves Ukraine is when Russia wants to leave Ukraine. They're, they are not going to be pushed out of Ukraine. And the reason why is because you are not going to see a Gulf War 91 type scenario where the United States through the UN brings together a large coalition of countries militarily and then invades Ukraine in order to push out Russia, which is what the United States did in 1991 when Iraq had invaded and taken control of Kuwait, the U.S. put together through Operation Desert Storm a large coalition that then militarily essentially invaded Kuwait to push Iraq back out. You're not going to see that happen here. And so given that, the only way Russia gets leaves is when Russia wants to leave. And that means you have to be very realistic about what those objectives would be for your end game, for your war aims. Looking back over the past decade, 
past 20 years, even if we got to go farther back than that, you're the professor of uh, of foreign policy, not me. So you tell me the timescale here, but uh, looking backwards, what big mistakes did we make in, if if any, I mean, maybe this is out of our control. Maybe Putin's going to do this anyway. Right. But um, were there mistakes that we made that NATO made that uh, the EU made that could have prevented this? And uh, second part of that question is going forward. How should we change our perspective on on how we treat Russia? So I think as maybe some of your listeners are familiar by now, perhaps, um, one of my colleagues here at the University of Chicago, John Mearsheimer, is becoming very well known for making exactly the argument that you're alluding to that there was fault on the part of the West. In fact, going so far as to say this whole thing is the West's fault. Now, the basis of his argument is that essentially NATO... Because of the fact that NATO was created as an alliance against Russia or against the Soviet Union in the Cold War, when the Cold War ended, NATO should have ceased to exist. But instead, it continued and it expanded into Eastern to Central Europe and then into Eastern Europe and then eventually brought in some of the former Soviet republics, such as the Baltic states. And his argument is that that very process of NATO expansion is going to be perceived by Russia as threatening. And and indeed, I you know what? I don't disagree with that. I think that is indeed the case. And we have lots of statements by Russian officials, including Boris Yeltsin from the 1990s, making statements along those lines. So there is some validity to that, that Russia is going to perceive not going to be happy about that process. And just to be clear, just to be clear, because I've read through some of the responses in your Twitter threads, like just to be clear in explaining somebody's actions, you're not justifying them. Exactly. Exactly. We're not we're not justifying them at all. Exactly. So that's yeah, there there is some validity to this notion that Russia is going to perceive this. And then you also have at the Bucharest summit back in 2008, NATO had made. If not, if you don't want to call them commitments, they at least had made allusions to or statements about eventually Georgia and Ukraine becoming NATO members. And so these are the things that my colleague, John Mearsheimer, will point to to say that, well, that's why Russia feels threatened. And so hence they need to push. And that's and so in that way, it was the rush. It was the West making Russia feel threatened. And that's what exacerbated things. My view is. That if you go back to what scholars were looking at at the end of the Cold War, they were right away pointing out that Russia and Ukraine was going to be an issue. That just because of the history, the nature of the relationship between these two countries, a lot of people who study that region were already worried about the potential for conflict and confrontation between these two countries. And that was before NATO expansion was ever even like considered. So you were already dealing with a tense situation and a tense situation that maybe you could argue that NATO expansion exacerbated because of the fact that it's going to put Russia a bit on, it's going to put them on the defensive. But you were already dealing with a situation where conflict was likely. And so for me, I think ultimately it's hard to say that the West is at fault here. And you really have to say that this was a situation that was likely, always likely to become a conflict. And if you want to put anything on NATO here, what you could criticize NATO for is not expanding far enough, fast enough. That's Mm. where you could actually put something on NATO. Because the reality is, I don't think Russia wants to touch the Baltic states. And the reason why they don't want to touch the Baltic states is even though they're not happy that the Baltic states are in NATO, they also know that the Baltic states are in NATO and they don't want to have a war with NATO. And if Ukraine had ended up being in NATO, yes, Russia would not have been happy about that. But they also would have known that now they are fully under Article 5 And they just can't do anything about it. So if you wanted to put any type of criticism on the West, even though, again, I think that this was a conflict that was always highly likely to break out. If you want to put anything on the West, you could say that NATO didn't expand fast enough. Yeah, it's hard for me to, uh, you know, I I think of when I read all these, your work and other people's work, I I think of it as like uh, possibly an accelerant, right? But when I read like Ann Applebaum and she says, look, you know, uh, Putin's a, uh, imperial nostalgist, right? Like this is something that he's been wanting to do. It's just a matter of opportunity, right? Exactly. Exactly. 
So uh, wrapping up, what, what would you have us, you know, moving forward? Is there something, is, is there some different way we should be treating uh, Putin? Should we be more confrontational with him in the future? What, how does this change our orientation towards Russia moving forward? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the best way to treat Putin going forward, I think, is to recognize that uh, he is someone who is much more risk accepting than maybe what we were willing to give him credit for. Right. I mean, that's one thing that I think I have updated on. And um, I think a number of folks thought that Putin was maybe a little bit more calculating about things than what he really is. And that is that he's because of you mentioned Ann Applebaum and about, you know, his imperialistic uh, views. I think he does hold these. I think it's been very evident by his own statements. And I think because of that, he is willing to take risks that maybe another leader is not willing to take. And I think that that's something where you can truly put a lot of this on Putin, that this notion of feeling, well, if we go through it, this notion of wanting Ukraine to be part of Russia, um, that's not unique to Putin. I think there are other members of the Russian foreign policy establishment who hold that view. Uh, the dissatisfaction or even perception of aggressiveness uh, by, of NATO, I think is, and NATO expansion is also not something unique to Putin. I think there are lots of members of the Russian foreign policy establishment but I th- who hold those views. But I think where Putin maybe has a bit of a uniqueness to him is he is likely much more risk accepting Mm -hmm. than other members of the Russian foreign policy establishment. And so hence you, given that one has to be kind of goes back to what Fiona Hill said that I was quoting earlier, where if you think he can't do it, he can. Mm -hmm. And that to me strikes me as something that's more of a Putin feature versus say a Russia feature. Well, Paul, thank you so much. I know that uh, I learned a lot today. I know that our listeners learned a lot. And I really appreciate you coming on the show. So thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed our conversation. All right. Well, as most of you know, we recently added two production assistants to the Utterly Moderate podcast, Allison Ritchie and Madison Lockman. And I thought it might be nice for them to stop by the show today and say hi and tell us a little bit about themselves. So, Madison, Allison, welcome to the show. Hi. <laughs> so, Madison, tell us uh, what what year you are, what your major, um, you know, what are you planning on doing with this college degree of yours? So, I'm a junior. I'm a dual major, political science and sociology, and I want to work in state government in some way, shape, or form. (laughs) And we've had a pretty good record at SHIP for people going on and working in Harrisburg, right? Yes, definitely. That's awesome. So you got lots of good social capital and social ties you can use. So that's awesome. Yep, yep. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good program over there. How do you like the poli-sci people? They're pretty cool. Yeah, no, I love them. Um, Yeah, and it's nice because the sociology department are all in the same hallway. So the same hallway, all tucked away at the very top of the business. Yeah, (laughs) school floor. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Uh, And so, Allison, tell us about yourself. So, uh, what year are you in your program, your major, and what you're planning on doing once you leave Shippensburg? Okay, so I'm a sophomore. I also am a dual major, but I major in sociology as well as communication journalism. And unlike Madison, I have no idea what I want to do. So you guys are really good students here at Shippensburg. Thank and you. <laughs> you must have been good students in high school, right? Yeah, I'd like to think so. I mean, I was on National Honor Society and Spanish National Honor Society. And, and Allison, I think you won some awards uh, as a high school student. Am I right about that? Yeah, I actually won this national scholarship my senior year of high school called the Horatio Alger Scholarship, which is given out to like 0.27% of applicants. Um, I was one of two in Pennsylvania. Oh, my goodness. Is that for academic achievement? It's for both academic achievement and then like overcoming adversity. That's really great. You definitely deserve it. Um, back before I knew anything about Allison, when I just knew her as a student in one of my classes and knew she was a really good student, I was really impressed with her then. And then when I found out a little bit about her background and 
the pretty serious obstacles she's overcome in her life. I just couldn't be more proud. She's really, really impressive. So um, very well deserved. Um, all right. So when I was talking to Madison and Allison about coming on the podcast, they were a little bit nervous. And one way I thought we could break those nerves was to let them decide what we were going to talk about. And so one of the things you wanted to talk about was what it's like being a female in college today. So tell us, what are the unique challenges faced by females in American colleges? I, it's hard just being a woman in general, but especially it's hard because you have these people coming in talking about their amazing careers and stuff, but it's such a men oriented world in politics. So it's, it's kind of hard to get excited then. And I don't know, like actually being a woman on campus isn't terrible. You still gotta, it's still a little scary sometimes at night, despite all the lights and stuff, but you make it work. You travel in packs. It is nice um, not having a dress code anymore from high school. So I can now show my shoulders without, <laughs> you know, retaliation. So, <laughs> so uh, and I want to get to Allison in a minute, but I want to um, explore that a bit further. So that's interesting. So, so was that something that you were cognizant of before you, you saw people coming in or was it kind of after the parade of male after male after male that all of a sudden it started to hit you? Like, how did that realization come to you? Um, so I was in a class last semester where every Friday we go to Harrisburg or they would come here to talk. And we had one man who was a lobbyist and he went into it and it sounded so cool. And then I was telling my parents and it just like, as I was telling them, I was like, wait, I'm like a girl. I can't actually do this. It's he told us a lot of it is taking the politicians out to the bars and stuff and winning them over with drinks at 3 a.m. And I was like, oh, I, I won't really be able to do that, you know. So it kind of just hit me slowly. I was like, yeah, lovely. So, I mean, I'm assuming I, I know there's some really good people over there, really good females over there in, in political science um, who can give you some mentoring about that and some advice about that. Is that something you sought out? Yeah. Shout out to Mariah Hathaway. <laughs> she's a <laughs> love, love her. She was also in Kappa Delta Phi, NAS. So she's also an alum of my sorority. Some bonus, but I love her and she made it work being a female. <laughs> so you can kind of follow her path and her example. Yes. <laughs> How about you, Allison? Uh, any reflections on what it's like being a female in college today? Um. So interestingly enough, uh, I, I have a public relations concentration with my comm journal major and public relations is actually a female dominated, dominated field. I didn't know that. But um, only 20% of all like leadership in public relations is female. So like it just kind of is a little bumming to know that like, even when there are females, they don't get to succeed as much as males. All right. So uh, for each of you, I'll start with you, Allison. Uh, what are you most excited about in the, your, your remaining time here at SHIP? And then what are you most excited about in terms of getting out of college? So, Oh, um, I feel like I've. it's weird to think about ever not being at SHIP because I feel like I just started. Um Hopefully, in my remaining time here at Chivensburg, uh, COVID mandates will be lifted and there will be more freedom, but I'm not too hopeful. Masks are coming off tomorrow. Not in class. I know, but I'm, <laughs> I'm still going to wear, I'm still going to double mask wherever I go on campus. I'm not trusting anyone. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't know what you mean. We're all very responsible. <laughs> So what about and when you leave here? What are you most looking forward to once you leave here? Uh, probably leaving Pennsylvania. Uh, really? Where do you want to go after after uh, college? 
wherever will take me, I guess. I don't know. Maryland. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Delaware. Yeah, somebody very close. All right. So, uh, Madison, in your remaining time here, what's what's what are you most looking forward to? You know, you're a junior. And then uh, once you're gone from ship, what are you most looking forward to? In my remaining time, very, very short time, um, I just am looking forward to continuing my friendships that I have and, you know, actually having a real college experience, which I feel I only got really started in the fall, thanks to COVID. Um, So that'll be fun. (laughs) Um, And when I'm out of here, I guess, just being more of an adult, having a full-time job to get money, to buy things, you know. (laughs) So what are you listening to these days, music-wise? What kind of movies are you watching these days? What kind of books are you reading? Madison, we'll start with you. Uh, Are we a Swifty? (laughs) No. I mean, I respect Taylor Swift. I'm just not a huge fan. Like, I like some of her music. Allison's Um, eyes just popped out (laughs) of her head. (laughs) <laughs> Sorry. No, I like more alternative music. Honestly, I'm more of a pop punk girl. Um, All Time Low is my favorite band right now. Um, so, yeah. Anything like that. Fall Out Boy used to be my favorite band. Saw them three times in concert or two. Oh, that's like yeah. my generation, Fall Out Boy. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, I know. They're good. All right. So, um, uh, <laughs> movies, movies you're watching or Netflix shows you're watching? Uh, movies. Anything Marvel. Excited for Doctor Strange, Multiverse of Madness. (laughs) 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 I'm very excited about that. I'll be going opening night. Um, Just saw the Spider-Man. That was good. Um, Netflix shows. I'm re-watching Superstore on Hulu. I love that show. It's so funny. Highly recommend. And uh, books. What kind of books do you like to read? Um, I'm also rereading a book series. It's called The Selection. It's um, it's a romance. It's a combination of The Bachelor and a monarchy. So the prince brings in 35 common girls and he has to choose one to be his princess. But <laughs> it's not stupid. Like, there's a lot of political stuff going on in the background and stuff. Like It's actually really, it sounds really cheesy and stupid, but it's actually really like good. Yeah. <laughs> not everything can be serious we all need escapism sometimes too exactly all right allison so uh music you're listening to shows or, or movies you're watching and, and the books you like to read uh okay so music i guess i technically am a swifty i'll start with that <laughs> um but i also listen more to alternative stuff like madison um Taylor Swift is probably the extent of my pop music listening. I also listen to a lot of like old music, I guess. Like, I, I'm embracing <laughs> for what's old. Go ahead. Uh, like Fleetwood Mac. Okay, um, that's that's before was, my time. All right. <laughs> I listen to a lot of Queen and Van Halen as well. Okay. Uh, I, was, no. I, was, I was afraid you were going to say like, you know, Britney Spears or something like something really old. <laughs> All right. So how about uh, Netflix and uh, movies you're watching? I, I'm i not a big movie enjoyer. I do. I do like to watch TV shows, though. And currently my roommate and I have been rewatching Glee for like the 80th time. <laughs> It's so bad, but it's so good. All right. And how about <laughs> books you're reading? What kind of books do you like to read? I like to actually read anything, but currently I'm reading the Outlander series by Diana Gabaldon. I believe that's how her name is pronounced. It's like time travel, historical fiction, romance. I, I don't know. It's weird. It's a lot. All right. Well, I am very excited to have you guys helping uh, with the podcast and I'm hoping to get you guys involved with writing some stuff for the newsletter and stuff later on. So um, thank you guys for joining our team here. And is there anything else before we let you go? 
anything else you want to say to the listeners of our of our podcast? I would like to say hi to my mother and my father and to Mr. Aww. Clifton. <laughs> I got you a whole new listener. So, <laughs> Thank you. All right. Yeah. <laughs> I need to depend upon you guys to grow your social networks and then I can get more listeners. There we go. Yes. <laughs> All right, Allison, anything you want to say to our listeners before we wrap up? Sure. I'd like to say thank you to both of my academic advisors, um, Dr. Eppard, you, and then Dr. Chattopate in the ComGern department. Um, he's cool. All right. Well, Allison Ritchie and Madison Lockman, thank you guys so much for coming on and introducing yourselves. Thank you. Thank you. Happy trails to you until we meet again. Happy trails to you, keep smiling until then, who cares about the clouds when we're together, just sing a song and bring the sunny weather, happy trails to you, till we meet again. trails to you until we meet again happy trails to you keep smiling until then who cares about the clouds when we're together just sing the song and bring the sunny weather happy trails to you Goodbye, good luck, and may the good Lord take a liking to you.